In 1 Chronicles chapter 19, there's a very interesting story, but probably not one that you know super well. You might pass over it rather quickly. Um, it's, it's about the time, and the, the writer of Chronicles doesn't go into the whole Bathsheba incident, which I'm sure you're aware of. That's a, that's a, that's a juicy passage, not preaching on that one. But anyway, um, something similar is kind of happening around this time period, and that is that David is not going out to battle with his, with his army. They're coming up against the Syrians, and David sends Joab, his commander, and they go out and they defeat the Syrians, and all is well and good. But then the Syrians, seeing that they've been you know, beaten and gotten a pretty bad drubbing, they decide, you know what? We're going to go get some more people and really bring an army against Israel. So they go beyond the Euphrates, and they bring troops, and so they've amassed this huge army. And at that point, it says that David mustered all of, all of the troops throughout Israel and that he went into battle with them. And they just, they just demolish the Syrians. I mean, they, they give it to them bad. So even to the point that the Syrians have to become subjects um, under the, the Davidic rule. So, pretty amazing thing. And, and as, probably not one that, have you, do you even remember reading that story in First Chronicles? You just kind of pass over it rather quickly, but here's the thing that got me thinking, because I I guess maybe because I was in the passage already uh, that I'm preaching today when I saw this, but I thought, how cool would it have been for an Israelite? You you have this fear of this overwhelming enemy, and David hasn't been there. I mean, he's your king. You you know how powerful he is, and, and, and you know that he's a warrior, but all this time he hasn't been going, and then all at once he goes up, and he leads you into battle, and you defeat your enemies. I think about how the people of Israel must have looked toward Messiah and expected that, that very thing. You know, the word Christ, Jesus the Christ, um, means anointed one. The same word as the, as the Hebrew Messiah. You know, prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and in particular, kings were anointed. And so there was this expectation that they were looking forward to, the people of Israel expecting one like King David to come with this power that, that could lead them against their enemies. And that's actually what, exactly what ends up happening. I know it kind of goes against the, the narrative that we have in our mind of Jesus, meek and mild and, and so forth, um, but I want to suggest to you that, that Jesus, in fact, has come in a very similar way. Now, it's in spiritual terms, not, not the sort of physical means of the flesh, but in a very real way, Jesus has come as our king. You know, we saw in the early opening verses of Acts that Jesus spent 40 days talking to them about the kingdom of God and how they are going to go and they are going to end up proclaiming that kingdom, but they had to wait on the Holy Spirit. And that's what we kind of, we we got to that moment, that opening of Pentecost last week. Do you remember that? Some of the people that, that heard the voices, the tongues being spoken as the, as, the, as the word of God was being proclaimed in all these various languages, some of them thought they were um, drunk. And they didn't really, I don't think, the implication isn't that they really thought they were drunk, they just, they just were mocking, and so they just kind of looked askance and said, ah, yeah, those guys are probably drunk. But do you remember that it said of the other ones that they were perplexed and amazed, and they asked, what does this mean? What does this mean? And today, as we pick this up, I would suggest to you that Peter is going to tell us exactly what Pentecost means. And, uh, you know, 
this is gonna be very, I hope, I hope, if you pay attention and stay with me, this ought to be really clarifying. How many people feel sometimes confused by the whole Pentecost thing? And, and, you know, and there's so many different opinions, and some people wanna take Pentecost and turn it into this sort of, you know, like repeatable, each Christian is supposed to go through sort of a micro level, uh, you know, repetition of Pentecost in their own life and so forth, and, and they wanna reduce it down to a very private experience, but that's not what Pentecost means. I'm just gonna sort of tell you ahead of time. On that, on that score, I don't think that's what Pentecost means, and I don't think we should be confused about it. In the context, context of Acts, our king, like David, has gathered his people for battle. He has called us together. He is going to take the church from Pentecost onward and send the church out into the world. And he says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, meaning we are on the offensive. We are part of an offensive, <laughs> in more ways than one probably, offensive military campaign of taking our king's kingdom, of, of proclaiming that kingdom to the whole world. It's, Pente, Pentecost is really a, a battle cry, kind of like Shakespeare, you know? Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. It's, I know they picked it up for Star Trek as well, but uh, it's something like that, you know, like let's roll, let's, let's get on with this, let's, let's, let's take the kingdom of God, the, the message of the kingdom of God to the world. So our thought today, where, you, where you, the application in of this is, is mostly that we should join that campaign. We should join the mission of Christ our King. So three truths here we're gonna cover. You may have noticed there was a lot of scripture there. Can we go over all of that? Yes, we can, from about 30,000 feet, admittedly, but we're, 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 we're gonna fly over. I'll bring some of it out, and some of it will go over pretty quickly. But anyway, Christ our King pours out this spirit on God's people to initiate the mission. So Peter's gonna explain, in answer to their question, what does this mean? He's gonna explain exactly what it means. The first thing, though, he's gonna do is tell them what it didn't mean, and that is he's gonna knock down that little theory. He's gonna nip that one in the bud, the one where they're drunk, and, and he doesn't spend much time with it. He just goes, okay, guys, it's, it's the third hour of the day, meaning 9 a.m. Kind of, if, if, if these were the sort of men that were gonna go, and men and women, and, and get drunk, they would have done it in the evening, and if they did it the night before, they sure wouldn't be up at nine o'clock by this point. They'd be all in bed with a hangover. It's like, this doesn't happen. That's, that's ridiculous. But um, he quickly moves on to the, the meaning of it. When you read the Old Testament, how many feel a little confused when they read the Old Testament trying to put it together with the New Testament? Do you, yeah, none of you. You're all like Old Testament scholars. That's great. Um, I won't have to explain nearly as much. But in all seriousness, I think it is. For a lot of Christians, we, you start in the New Testament, you read a lot of New Testament stuff, then you go back and you start reading the Old Testament. You're like, how's this fit? Well, the problem in the Old Testament that we find, this should ring true again and again, is that there's this sin problem. God keeps saving his people, 
keeps bringing them out of this exile and, and that enslavement and so forth and he sends them leaders and they, and they, and they have these times of, of revival and they're seeking the Lord and then they uh, go completely the other way and they end up going into exile. And you get to the end of the Old Testament and this pattern has repeated itself over and over and over. It seems like the people of God can never really just obey God from the heart. So you're in the Old Testament with this gaping hole, like what's gonna happen? Where is it all gonna go? Where, when will Messiah come? And the prophets kinda, kinda help them out by saying, look, here's what's gonna have to happen. And you see this in Ezekiel, you see this in Isaiah, you see it in Joel, which Peter's gonna quote, and that is that God has to pour his spirit out on his people. He has to give them a new heart and a new spirit. He has to take the stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. He has to take the uncircumcised heart and circumcise it so that they might have hearts to obey him. If you ever ask yourself, why does Jesus expect Nicodemus to understand what he's saying about the Holy Spirit? That's why. Because that was the trajectory of the Old Testament and that was the essential message of what they were, they were waiting on Messiah, they were waiting on the Holy Spirit. In this light, Peter shows them that Pentecost is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Let's look at that really quickly here. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out, so the baptism of the Spirit is called the pouring out, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. So the miraculous sign of Pentecost that we talked about last week, it's, it's rich in imagery and you can see a lot of what's going on there. It represents to us the birth of the church and that the whole world was reached on that day in a representative way. You remember say, I said that last time? Like this whole mission, Acts 1-8, going to the world, you know, um, is culminated in one sense the very first day because there's the, there there's the whole world at their doorstep, as it were, in kind of representative form. But strictly speaking, the key meaning of Pentecost is not that this is how we're gonna reach the world by speaking in other tongues. You will find that 99.9999999% of missionaries end up having to learn the language that Pentecost doesn't keep repeating itself with every missionary that goes to a foreign country just suddenly knowing how to speak the language. And I don't doubt that God enables and gives gifts and helps missionaries learn the language in many cases faster than they would have otherwise and so on and so forth. But what, it, what Pentecost means is the Holy Spirit was poured out. That's what it means. Think about lightning for a minute or thunder. How many just about jumped out of their hide on Wednesday morning this week? That live, those of you that live in Great Bend, I'm seeing some, yeah. Man, that was a thunderclap like I've never heard. My poor dog was on the floor with a bouncy ball in her mouth, just, and that thing hit, and she like came off the floor about three feet, and man, I didn't know, she almost swallowed the thing. It, it, it was bad. But ask yourself, when you hear that thunderclap, is, is that the substance of, of what has just taken place? Is the thunderclap the substance of what's taken place? Is the lightning the substance of what's taken place? Mm -mm. What, what is the substance? 
It's the discharge of static electricity on a very large scale, right? That's the, that's the substance of what creates the, the lightning and the thunder. And in the same way, when we look at Pentecost, Pentecost is not the speaking in tongues. It is not the, the sound of the wind or the, or the appearance of what looked like tongues of fire that came to rest on them. Rather, what it is, it, it is that, it, it is the pouring out of God's spirit on God's people. Now, in the Old Testament times, there were people that had the Holy Spirit come upon them. You, as you read the scripture, if, and that can confuse you too. You're talking about the Old Testament sometimes being confusing. It's like, well, wait, I, I read this and the Holy Spirit came upon this person and came upon that person. Yes, that is true. In isolated incidences, there were people who did, in fact, receive the Holy Spirit for a time, for a particular reason. But Pentecost, what Pentecost is about is that all those who are God's people, all who have trusted in Christ, receive the Holy Spirit. And that was new. That called for more than just a a thunderclap. And the key reason that they received it was so that they might be prepared for the mission of taking Christ's kingdom to the world. Jesus said that very clearly in chapter one. This is why you have to wait. This is why the Holy Spirit's coming. It's so that you may be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and on and on as it goes. Note how perfectly this was fulfilled. Uh, um, sorry, Joel said, all flesh, all flesh. Now what does all flesh mean? Does it mean that every creature would receive the Holy Spirit? Like chipmunks and Whippoorwills, just stick some random animal in there. Probably porpoises, I love porpoises, so probably, no. No, does it even mean that every human being, when it says all flesh? No, what what it's saying is, is that all of those who are God's people will receive the Holy Spirit regardless of any trait of birth. So what it's saying, doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman. It doesn't matter whether it's young or it's old, slave, free. Eventually it's gonna be Jew or Greek, in fact. I mean, here it's all Jewish believers, but we're gonna find out that the same spirit is given to the Gentile believers just as much as, as otherwise. And lo and behold, it's what, what kind of people receive the spirit in, at, at, at Pentecost? We had men and women both there, remember? You had, you had Mary, you had the brothers of Jesus, you had the women that had traveled with Jesus. They're all there. So men, women, young, old, just exactly as Joel predicted. And the impact of this is amazing. You would talk about energizing the mission. We're gonna find out that 3,000 people believed as a result of, of the way that Pentecost plays itself out. Moving on, it says, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness. That's, this should sound fam- vaguely familiar, right? Sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pentecost can be so disorienting for some people. And I think it's because of a confusion that has come into the church with people believing and saying a lot of different things. And so people can be very disoriented by, by this and say, just, what does it mean? Almost the way those people then say, well, what does this mean? And it's, it is so ironic that people would be disoriented by Pentecost because 
of all the stories in the New Testament that ought to completely orient us, it's Pentecost. You, you plug this stuff in, it tells us everything we need to know about who we are, where we are, when we are, what we're about, who's we, you know, we belong to, and you can just go down the list. It, it, it is the big aha moment that, that tells us exactly what ground we're standing on and what we're about and whose kingdom we're fighting for. It all comes out at Pentecost. Joel speaks of heavenly signs and wonders that he's talking about the very same signs and wonders that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 that happened right before his coming. So if you look at verse 17, quoting Joel, where it says, in the last days, and Peter says this is being fulfilled. So what, what does that tell you? Okay, on the one end, it says we're in the last days. And then on the far end, it talks about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And so where and when are we? We are in the last days. The, bap- the Spirit's been poured out. We have been baptized in the Spirit. We are waiting for the day of the Lord when Christ will return. We are preaching the gospel. We are bearing his witnesses to all those who will listen. And it says all those who listen and believe, what? Will be saved. Those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This isn't like confusing, is it? Isn't this the simplest thing in the world when you really put it into its context? Yeah, to make Pentecost into a private I get zapped moment would be like taking the crucifixion. And some people do this, like in the Philippines. It would be like looking at the crucifixion and drawing the application. Well, you know, we should probably at least once in our lifetime let ourselves be crucified. People do that. Like there are people on, on Good Friday in the Philippines routinely who will go out and some of them that are real believers will even have it done multiple times over the years. And they'll go out and they'll, you know, smaller nails than Jesus and, and they don't die, they just, they just have excruciating pain for a little while on Good Friday because that's the application they take. Which is just so sad because that's not what the crucifixion is, that's not the meaning and the application. It ought to cause us to look to Christ and, and see our need for that grace and see the cost of our salvation, how loved we are as his people, that, that this was done for us. And yeah, in the same way, when you look at Pentecost, it's not about, first and foremost, it's not about you and a private experience in which you feel some real great feeling and maybe you speak in tongues or something like that. That's not what Pentecost is about. Pentecost is D-Day. Pentecost is D-Day. You know, D-Day came, what, if those of you that have studied this, I don't think I'm talking to anybody that was, that was there, but I never know, but um, yeah. I mean, they landed on those beaches and they suffered horrific, uh, you know, horrific um, death rates and so forth until they got a beachhead established. And then that campaign, that European campaign, pushing back the Nazis just kept moving, didn't it? And new troops were were added along the way until they eventually won the war. Pentecost is D-Day. You and I, we weren't at the beaches, you know, Omaha and Normandy and so forth. But we've been added in, haven't we? We're fighting the same campaign. Christ's mission and his campaign, his kingdom purposes are still the same. We are still in the last days until that day when Christ returns. Secondly, God raised our king from the dead, thereby proving his kingship. I mean, it wouldn't do very well to follow a king 
that claims to be a king if he is not, in fact, um, the king he says he is. Peter moves from explaining the, the, the essential elements of what happened on Pentecost to witnessing to Jesus. And, and of course, he ties all of this with, his, with the gospel. Now, you ever see on Facebook one of those things like only uh, one person in a hundred is smart enough to understand and see this puzzle? That, you know that's just trying to sucker you into clicking, right? You, you do know that? 99 people out of 100 are stupid enough to think this is true. Uh, you know, if you can find the quacky duck in the middle of this picture, you're like an incredibly intelligent person. Well, I see it's right there. Yeah. See if you can find the gospel in this. It's really hidden like a Where's Waldo puzzle. See if you, see if you can find the gospel. Uh, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know this, Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held. Now, I know it was hard, but did you see the gospel there anywhere? Gospel as in 1 Corinthians 15, which is essentially that Jesus Christ came into this world, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, was buried. On the third day, he rose again. And he's able to say to them, you know this. You know, what, what did they know? Well, first of all, they knew that he was a miracle worker. They never really disputed that at any point along the way. Nowhere in, in the Gospels do they come right out and just dispute that Jesus did wonders. All they could do was try to, you know, fault, uh, find fault like, oh, well, you did it on the Sabbath. That's not good. Or, um, or they'd say, well, maybe you're doing it because you're in league with Satan or something. But they, they didn't come right out and deny it. So when Peter says that, he knows that they know he knows they know. Huh? Peter says, you yourself, no. He's, he's confident that this is, is known to them. But then he tells them two things that we probably don't share when we're sharing the gospel. First thing he does is he says, now this was according to God's sovereign plan. He says, delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We don't often mention that. We skip over that part many times because, yeah, we don't want to confuse people with you know, God's sovereignty and things like this, but they, it, you know, Peter's just like, hey, guys, this is not God MacGyvering something, you know? Like, it wasn't, it got, got, they didn't just like kill Jesus and, he's, and, and God's up there going, well, oh, how am I gonna make some sense of this? Right, this is according to the sovereign purpose and plan of God. And here was the other uncomfortable part. Peter lays the guilt right at their doorstep. He says, you, I mean, he might as well be, maybe he was pointing his finger at them. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Again, he told them something they knew. They, you know, this, this is not 2,000 years later. I, you have to be careful, and I would just caution you, if you're talking to a Jewish person saying, hey, you know what, you guys killed Jesus. Not a good not a good way to lead while talking to a person of Jewish extract, because that's been used against them through the centuries, and so that's probably, but this is 50 days after they put Jesus to death. When, when Peter tells them this, he knows they know. 
He knows they remember how this went down, that the Jewish leaders turned him over to Pilate after having found him guilty in their, in their court of law and then asked for the death penalty and the people all cried out, crucify him. He knows they know. And then Peter goes right to the resurrection. He says, God raised him up. Do you think that they were inclined to believe that, by the way? Flatfield sunny day, I don't think they were inclined to believe that at all. Under normal circumstances, and, and I say that because the Jewish people, for the most part, believed in a resurrection. They believed it was going to happen, but their picture of it was that it would be at the end of the age. You, know, you read the book of Daniel and other places where it talks about that, that resurrection, which we are looking forward to as well. But they had it pegged to that, that end time event, and so the idea of one man dying and being raised in this age. That was something that would have been somewhat foreign to, uh, to them. But there's several reasons I think that they, that they would have been persuaded. First of all, they had Pentecost, <laughs> right? They're standing there going, what does this thing mean? They, they have seen and they have heard and they know it's a miracle. So that's softened them up a little bit, right? And then, they, then you got Peter up there. And don't you think Peter must have been a very persuasive guy in this situation. I mean, he's Galilean, eh, no fault, but I mean, yeah, he can't help where he was born, but I mean, here he is, this simple fisherman, but he's been with Jesus, and he is just preaching it. It's like a MMA fight, you know? And, and, and Peter's just in there, just body blows, you know, to him, give, giving all these, these, these thoughts, and, and then, then Peter goes in for the, like, just the haymakers and the uppercuts, you know, the, the jabs to the chin, because he starts quoting the scripture. Look what he says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Hmm, all right. Now David could have been talking about himself in kind of an exaggerated way. Thinking, well, you know, at this point in time you've not abandoned my soul to Hades and, and that kind of thing. But this must have been one of those stumbling blocks for the Jewish people when they read that because it's like, well, Peter, I mean, uh, David's dead. Yeah, he talks about not dying, of not being the Sheol or Hades, that's the idea of the grave and, and, and the place of the, the dead. And, uh, and, and there's David saying, you didn't, you didn't abandon me there and you didn't let my body see corruption, you know, meaning the body didn't decay. And yet they know, wait a second, he must be talking about Messiah there because he can't be talking about himself. And suddenly this, it's like a coin that, that drops and Peter leverages it. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So, he's, so Peter's basically saying, look, David saw this coming. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about a descendant. He's talking about the Messiah. And he's pointing out that David's tomb is occupied. Yeah? Did you know, according to Josephus, and jo I mean, it's Josephus, he was a histor Jewish historian, and you, it's not scripture, so you can consider this fanciful if you like, but according to Josephus, Herod the Great, you remember Herod the Great, yeah? Slaughter of the innocent and all that. Um, in his day, he decided that he would raid David's tomb. 
because there was the belief that they'd buried a bunch of gold with David. So he's, he's, he sent a couple soldiers to be put, to, to, to see if there was, I was gonna say to be put to death. That was actually what happened because supposedly he sends them into the tomb to get the gold and they both catch fire and die in a tomb. I mean, because that's where you, you know, where would you expect to catch fire but, you know, in a deep, dark, cold tomb. It's a very odd place to go on fire. And, uh, and yeah, and at that point, at that point, Herod thought, you know what, I don't think I'm gonna try that again. Uh, instead, I don't want any bad juju against me, so he built a colossal, uh, you know, marble kind of a thing there where David's tomb was to, yeah, I guess to get on, on David's good graces. It would be like us saying, John F. Kennedy is dead. And you're like, well, how do you know he's dead? Well, there's a, whole, a lot of things we could look at, but how about that, that place in Arlington Cemetery across from D.C. where there's the, the flame? By the way, he died on my sixth birthday. Can you believe that? I mean, you would have thought he would have at least managed to just pick a day on either side of it, but I mean, it was smack. You talk about a bad birthday. Yeah, because it's all about me. Um, <laughs> No, it was a bad birthday, I will say that. But anyway, where are we going with this? Um, the point is, they, could, they knew exactly where David was buried, and they knew what he was doing in that tomb. I mean, he was like Bach. He was no longer composing. He was decomposing, right? And, sorry, that's an old joke. Um, <laughs> but where could they go see Jesus' body? Hey, Joseph of Arimathea, take us to the tomb. Let's see Jesus' body. Uh, I can take you to the tomb, but uh, there's a slight problem there. It's empty. The tomb was, and, and, and that's what Peter brings to them. Yeah, someone like David had to come, a Messiah who would not see corruption, and they could just, they could just look at those two tombs and see the answer to their questions. Aren't, aren't you glad that our mission is not to eulogize a good man who lies dead in a tomb somewhere? How far do you think Christianity would have gotten if it, if it was just like a ph- philosophy of life from this really good guy named Jesus who was put to death and, and has seen corruption? How many millions of people would give, have given their lives, suffered torture and death to proclaim that? I think we know the answer to that. But God raised Jesus, our King, the Messiah, the Christ. He put his stamp of approval. He declared him and showed him to be the Lord and the Christ in that. And that's what we proclaim. God did it. God made it plain to all those who would look by raising Jesus from the dead. Finally, we're gonna get there. Christ, our exalted King, empowers us for the mission. Look what it says here. This Jesus God raised up, and of, of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So in these verses, what, what um, Peter does is he takes the two halves of what we've looked at and he brings them together. So you've got, 
here's this miracle which you guys are witnessing and seeing and you, and you know something's going on and I've explained this is, this, is the, this is the Holy Spirit coming on God's people. And then he brings up you know, what we've looked at in the gospel and he ties it together by saying the Jesus that died and was put in the tomb who rose from the dead has ascended into heaven and he is now exalted and being at God's right hand, he now, the king, the rightful king, risen, living, has the, has the authority given to him by the Father to send that which you are witnessing. Yeah, he, t- he ties and brings it all together. And then he quotes uh, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now check this out, okay? They're looking at this, he's bringing this out. Um, it's, a, it's a frequently quoted passage of scripture. Jesus himself quoted it, you may recall. We saw that in Luke's gospel, where Jesus is like, you know, how can this be David speaking about David or his own son? Because he's like, the Lord, this is David speaking, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, he doesn't say to me, but to my Lord, he's speaking about Jesus there. Jesus is the one reigning. And, and this is what's important, I think, in, in light of Pentecost particularly, he must reign, according to that psalm, until he makes his enemies his footstools. Where does that place us? How does Pentecost tell, you know, what is Pentecost telling us? In these last days, right, in the last days, until that day, when he comes, right, the day of the Lord. What's happening in between? He's making his enemies his footstool. And that has to keep happening until he comes. That's the campaign we're talking about. That's the meaning of Pentecost, is is Christ, our king, is leading his people into battle. By the way, if you're worried that that I'm diminishing all of the things that the Holy Spirit does on a personal level in our life, I'm not. I'm just saying Pentecost really isn't the place where you go to to learn all that. You wouldn't be a Christian today if it weren't for the Holy Spirit's work in your life. It's by the Holy Spirit that you have been born again. It is by the Holy Spirit that your eyes have been opened to to see who Christ is, to hear the word of God, to have it fall on a receptive heart. He's the one that helps you in prayer. He is the one that seals you to the day of redemption. And we could go on. All of that is true on a very personal level, but Pentecost is more than that. Pentecost, just in a nutshell, it is the coming of the Holy Spirit to drive the mission of the kingdom of God, to proclaim the name of Christ to the nations. That's what Pentecost is about. It's really like that moment, I don't know if you're Tolkien fans, I know, I know a couple of you are, and, and I know who you are, Chris Riddle. Um, <laughs> I always hesitate to even use one of those because I'm gonna end up botching something and I'll be told afterward that wasn't quite technically true. Um, but I'm gonna do it anyway, Chris. Uh, it's that, so I only saw the movies. I read The Hobbit and I was done with the whole thing at that point. Sorry, my apologies. But in the movie, The Return of the King, there's that lighting of the beacons, that moment where they, where they light the beacons in the, in the kingdoms of men of which there were like seven and you know, you got Gondor and you got Rohan and, and a bunch of others that nobody remembers, but um, 
Chris would remember, sorry. <laughs> but that, no, there's this moment where, where uh, I think it's Pippin goes up and, and lights the one beacon, it's on a mountain, and, and they were put there so that if, if, the, if one of the kingdoms of men came under attack, they could light a beacon, and then the next kingdom, the next nearest kingdom from, from their mountain could see that, and then they would light their beacon, and then on and on it would go until all of them had been made you know, all aware that they were under attack and that they should join the battle. That's what Pentecost is, isn't it? It's the lighting of that flame. It is, it is God lighting the flame. It's, it's not our effort. It is he sends the flame. He sends the fire. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And the reason he does so is so that his people might be empowered to carry through the mission that he gave them to do. That's the meaning of Pentecost boys and girls, that is what it is all about. And so how do, what's the application for us? Have I joined the battle? Am I aware that that's what my, as a believer, that that's what my life is about in the big scheme of things, okay? I'm not saying that there aren't a million and one other things in your life as a Christian that you deal with and there's, there's scriptural passages that speak to those things, how to have a good marriage, how to raise your children and, all, and so on and so forth. But what does Jesus say? He says, seek first the kingdom of God. So make that first. That's what you're about. The other things, we'll, we'll get those things taken care of. God, God will add those things. You'll, you'll be all right. But that, that kingdom of God, that, that kingdom mission, that's what we're called to. And if you're not a believer... I'm gonna say, if I were you, which is always a, you should almost never start a conversation like that, should you? But if I could put myself in your situation and, and I was not today a believer in Jesus Christ, I would listen to this. Whether you're persuaded or not, at least hear what the scripture is saying. It is saying that we are in the last days. The scripture is saying all of this was foretold beforehand all of what you're reading that God said hundreds and hundreds of years before that this that this would take place that we are now in that age that 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 final period leading up to what's called the day of the Lord when all of Christ's enemies have been made his footstool he will return between now and then all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the good news, that you can be saved today. Now, once Christ comes, that, the deal's off. That's, that's, that's the end of the time of opportunity. So if you're here today and you've not really wrestled with these things, I would just, I would just hold that out to you and say, believe today, call on him. Call on the name of the Lord, believing what the Bible says concerning Jesus, throwing your trust completely upon him, and you will become his child. And you can join the mission. You can join the mission. You can, you can join D-Day in progress. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, Pentecost can be made quite confusing or it, 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 in one way, it, it's actually pretty simple, Lord. We thank you that it orients us, that it shows us who we are and whose we are and where we're going and when we are and what we're saying and how we're to say it. Lord, you, you, you make it so clear. We thank you for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit means so much to us on, in so many ways and we thank you for every one of them. But in particular, Lord, we thank you that he empowers us to be about your mission.
Lord, to fight the good fight, to carry your name, and I pray that we would. I pray that you would embolden us by that same spirit the way you emboldened the early church, that we might speak the word of Christ to those who would hear, those who would listen. And I pray that even today, Lord, that there might be someone who would hear and that they would see their time, and that time every day grows shorter. I pray they would make that, that um, yeah, that decision that they would see and, and call upon the name of the Lord, and be saved. We ask it in your name, amen.